Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. Well, <sighs> and it is a lovely morning. It is a lovely morning. Yeah. We've great had a little bit of rain. Garden. Yeah, great day to be out in the garden. Yep. Uh, everything is bursting. I can't believe... Oh. If I don't walk around my garden every day, either in the morning before I come to work, but not this morning because that would have been silly because it was nearly dark, um, uh, or in the evening when I get home, I miss things. Uh, or something's just exploded. I mean, I've been having, dare I say, a peony season this year. Okay. Because <laughs> over the last three or four years, I've been sort of, I don't know, quietly squirrelling away different peonies and planting them out in the garden at home. And I had a rush of blood this year, and I planted a whole pile of the intersectional hybrids, the itos, which are sort of crosses between herbaceous peonies and tree peonies, because I saw them in France when I was over there earlier in the year, and I, I found eight varieties were available here. So, of course, all eight had to go into the garden. And, and I put a couple more tree peonies in. And it's just been one of those seasons. The peonies have just been exquisite. They've... they've Flowered better than I've ever had them flower before. Their flowers seem to be bigger this year for some reason or another. Uh, and there seems to be an awfully long season this year. I mean, they're still going. And the first peony was out sort of towards the end of September. And I've still got ones that haven't actually broken into bloom yet. A couple that I've not seen in flower before that are going to flower this year, which is really exciting. Uh, and it'll be extra exciting if they actually turn out to be what the name was. Because um, that's one of those things that really annoys when you're pay money for a really expensive plant because peonies aren't cheap and then it turns out not to be the one you were expecting sometimes it's well there's no such thing as an ugly one but nonetheless uh, uh, sometimes the colour isn't quite what you'd expected so if you if you sort of planted one to get a nice rich purple in the garden and it turns out to be a lolly pink um Yes. A little bit of a surprise. <laughs> so I've got one I'm still waiting for that I bought two years ago from um, Ronnie Bogle up in the Dandenongs which uh, is supposed to be one of those sort of peony rocky eyes, sort of a white with dark blotches down in the throat, uh, a cultivar called Infanta, and I haven't been able to find a reference to Infanta anywhere. Um, it certainly looks different to any other peony I've got in the garden so far, and the buds are just starting to swell enough to see a little bit of colour of the petals. So over the next week, I'll see whether this thing turns out to be something really interesting or not. Okay. Uh, so, yes, it's been the pe- peony spring this spring. Wonderful. And I've been Facebooking oodles of pictures of peonies over the last few weeks. Um, so it's been good fun. Excellent. So That's what I'm doing. Brilliant. We've also got to say a very good morning to John Arnott. Good morning, John. Good morning, Pam. How are you going? Oh, not too bad. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I'm a little croaky, I must say, because one of the downsides of spring and it's probably the only downside of spring, is grass pollen. Oh, dear. And I'm one of those, yeah, and must have sneezed, I don't know, 150 times yesterday, so I am a little bit cocky. I could do a very good Marlon Brando, you know. (laughs) Yes, yes, you've got that really deep, sexy voice. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, I've got the croaky voice. Okay, we'll forgive you. Yeah, but (laughs) isn't spring great? I love everything about spring except for um, grass pollen. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes, rather unfortunate being a horticultural. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's out, out in the elements. Yes. I mean, the th- I, it was triggered by Marvin. We've we've moved house, so we've got a, a little um, a little new garden uh, in Bomb Beach, and I mowed the nature strip, and bang, that was it. I was gone. Oh. A little, just a little nature strip. It's not fair. Anyway. Well, you'll have to turn it into a habitat. That's right, yeah, that yeah. Grass. In fact, we're, we're negotiating that. We're um, one of two, so it's on a subdivided block, so we're negotiating that with the, the lady at the back. Okay. Um, in, in order to yeah, plant the nature strip, so I think we'll plant the nature And we'll probably put a few native grasses in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> But lovely, it's uh, it's lovely establishing a a new garden from scratch. Um, We're in the sort of the grey coastal sands, uh, those hydrophobic grey coastal sands, which are you know problematic, but also a bit of an asset for 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 growing um, you know plants of the coast. So we're, we're certainly... We're going to grow all those Western Australians. Well, Eremophila nivea. Yeah. We're growing Eremophila nivea beautifully. Yeah, um, and we planted... Uh, oh, look, the, the garden's about nine months old. And, you know, the plant establishment in, in those sands, for things that like the sands, is really terrific. Mm. So a bunch of Eremophilas and... Yeah, it's a bit of a mixture of... Um, local natives, there's the Karam Indigenous Nursery, we went down to the Karam Indigenous Nursery and got a few local things, and we've mixed it up with some things from elsewhere, from mm-hmm. Western Australia, and some Mediterranean things as well. There was, the, yeah, there was some existing, very, very lovely uh, lavenders um, that have been retained. Yep. So, oh, good. But it's and a grey garden. <laughs> it's, a grey, it's a grey garden. That's all right. Yeah. It matches me. <laughs> <laughs> We're all yeah. <laughs> we could do the die thing. If we <laughs> That's fine. No, no, no. no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also have to say a really good morning to AB Bishop. Hi, AB. Oh, good morning, morning. Yes, and yeah, uh, talking about hair dye. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I think I've got the grey roots coming through. Yeah. Guys can get away with it much more than than girls can. I think so they? too. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's um, how exciting for you John a brand new garden it's lovely that's, it's, that's thrilling it's really really good yeah. it's really good we, we actually a little plucky for the, um, the, the growing friends we've got quite a lot of the plants from the growing friends at the Cranbourne Gardens did you get a special staff discount <laughs> uh, we did get a special staff discount yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and um, it's their it's their plant sale this weekend as well so okay. um, it, yesterday and today so uh, today until 4 o'clock so we've got a lot of the um, a lot of the stock from the growing friends is, is three inch tubes Mm. So, Fantastic. Yeah, cheap, cheap way of doing it. Really good way yeah, of doing yeah, it. Yeah. Really good way of yeah. doing it, actually. So did, did you uh, do anything with your soil? Um, I actually dug it over. It was pretty compacted mm-hmm. uh, because it was a, a front lawn that was parked on. Oh, so it was, oh. so it was, that would be compacted. So dug it over, shaped it a little bit. Um, uh, of course, what has come through with a, a compacted lawn is the dreaded oxalis. So we've got we've got well I'm I'm staying on top of it I'm, 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 I really I'm, I think I can beat the oxalis um, and uh, Romulia rosea so oh, the, uh, last uh, little Romulia yeah. is a real person so a couple of persistent uh, persistent uh, perennial weeds um, but the, uh, chip chip away the, at the um, oxalis and you, you you get there you think so. Well, because because you, you, there's two schools of thought. One one school of thought is don't try and weed it out because all you're doing is spreading it. Yep. 
um, just cut it off to weaken the plant and oh, keep yeah. at it that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Or else I presume you're actually trying to dig it out, eh? Um, with the advantage of sandy soil is you can get a, 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 a weeding. Yeah, you can actually weed it. <laughs> and you can get right in underneath it and sort of hoik them out. out. Yeah. 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 Um, and they like, I mean, I left a few of the little bulbs. Yeah, um, yeah. so um, it's going to be an ongoing process. It'll be an ongoing process. Yeah. But I mean, what a what a plant! I mean, that that tuber that it has at one time of the year is such a an amazing survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it produces little bulbs on the side, and I know that tuber is quite tasty. Oh, really? So you can have your your. Um, Weeds and eat them too. <laughs> yes, have your weeds and eat them too. Really? So that carrot-like tuber that the oxalises produce is actually really nice. It's it crunchy. Raw? Raw. Yeah, you just... I'd wash them. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, um, you don't do anything to them and you just eat them. And really? Funnily enough, I'm having a run on oxalis at the moment, i.e. the ornamental ones, mm. because it's suddenly become the trendy thing to put in really upmarket salads. Uh, for um, the big restaurants, and okay. they use the flowers and the leaves, which of course are full of oxalic acid, so you wouldn't want them in quantity. Yeah. They've got a real bite. Yeah, right. And so I had a guy in two weekends ago that just about bought me out of most of my ornamental oxalises, really? which he's going to grow hydroponically, okay. and put through his salad mixes. Mm. And so there's purple leafed ones, and, and, and pink flowered ones, and, and orange flowered ones, and all sorts of different colours and forms there you that go. he's going to use as a salad mix, mm. or in part of a salad <coughs> mix, it won't be all salad. Because I, I remember as a kid, we used to call the, the yellow oxalis um, sour grass. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, it's got and you'd that suck really it. T- and yeah. you'd suck it, yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. So you can imagine that it's like using rocket and some of those other more bitter. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, you don't, you don't have them in huge masses. You just yeah, add, them, you add them, them to the garnish. Garnish. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so suddenly I found a new niche market for oxaluses. <laughs> mm. And there's been two people who've come in to buy up my oxaluses. I'm struggling to keep up. Well, I'm not keeping up because they've bought me out of two or three varieties. Really? Yeah. Uh, particularly the summer growing ones. Um, and they're going to be selling the foliage and flowers. It's, 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 ox- it's those oxalis are notoriously difficult to cultivate. Yeah. Is that right? Some of them can. Some be. of them can. How be, ironic. Yeah. How, how, <laughs> how very <laughs> ironic. It sort of is, and, and it does actually illustrate an interesting point because um, it's a huge genus. It's got basically worldwide distribution. Mm. So one's got to assume there's going to be a various levels of hardiness and, and climatic requirements for different species. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's inevitable. Uh, and so some of the high Andean ones, for instance, sake, are virtually impossible to keep <laughs> in this country. Sure. You get one 45-degree day and they Next just collapse time. and disappear. Sure. Uh, because they're high alpines. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we've got one or two that grow up in the, in the mountains in, in, Vic- in Victoria and New South Wales. Yep. Osiosco's got its own native oxala. Yep. Um, and they don't flourish well in suburban gardens, no. really. They'll, they'll fade out. Um, so, yeah, so there's this huge diversity in them. I mean, there's one or two succulent species that come from places like Namibia that grow into shrubs about three metres high. Is that and right? if they get too wet, they'll just turn into porridge and fall apart. Amazing. You know, so it is a huge genus. Mm. Um, and dare I get on my bandwagon about um, quarantine and restrictions and things, but it does annoy me when the powers that be ban a genus. But based on yeah, one, 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 one or two, one or two weedy attributes, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Especially um, when we have a whole bunch of native 
Yeah. Um, well, I actually did yeah. have that argument yeah. at, at a big conference <laughs> I went to years ago, and somebody got up and said, oh, New South Wales banning the genus Oxalis, and I said, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> now banning Oxalis lactea, which is on the endangered species yeah, list, that lives right. on Mount Kosciuszko. Uh, and there was dead silence. Uh, I believe the legislation went through, but excluding native species, is right. what they said. So well, an, an asterisk. Yeah, that's right. So, um, but it, and stupid me, I didn't think to remember about Oxalis tuberosa, which people grow as a garden vegetable. Mm. So in theory, that's illegal to grow in New South Wales, apparently, right. uh, because it wasn't excluded from mm. the ban. Um, so, yes, whole genera banning, I think, needs to be stopped because they've done almost the same thing with salix. Yeah. Um, and so the willows have been banned except for two or three sort of varieties for some reason. Cricket bats, probably. Yeah, probably <laughs> cricket bats, yes. And, and funnily enough, one of the willows you're allowed to grow is salix... Um, I think it's called nigrescens, I think, mm-hmm. um, which is the black-stemmed one, yeah. uh, because it's used a lot in the florist trade. Okay. Uh, so there's money to be made out of that willow, mm. and somehow or another, that one didn't get banned. Mm. Yes, isn't that funny? Yeah. You know, isn't it interesting? And yes. I can grow and sell the weeping pussy willow, which is grafted onto a standard. Yeah. Now, it's a fertile female clone we're growing in Australia. Yeah. And if you plant it anywhere where there's male pussy willows around... Seedlings will come up everywhere. Yeah. So, and they're just ordinary pussy willows. They don't come up as weeping ones. Yeah. Um, and yet I'm allowed to grow that and sell it. And yet I know it has weed potential. And yet there's a little willow called Salix boidii, which is a sterile hybrid that grows to about four inches tall <laughs> that was discovered in a bog in Scotland or Ireland somewhere. I've got a plant. Yeah, I, I've got a plant of it in a pot. At the what nursery. a terrible monster. Yeah, and it's, it would be three inches tall after eight years. <laughs> and somehow or another, they didn't think to exclude that one from the ban. So in theory, I can't grow and sell it, even though it has absolutely no weed potential. No. Um, it just can't do anything. It's a sterile hybrid, for goodness sake. Um, and yet, in theory... It is illegal to grow it. We're a weird mob. Mm. We are. Common yeah. sense bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. well, not. You know, look, I'm more than happy to follow the rules yeah. where they make sense. Uh, but I get a little annoyed when they don't make sense. Because mm. if sure. you're not doing the proper science, they just get you annoyed. Uh, because you know they're not doing the right science. Uh, and so why do you feel the need to follow somebody who isn't, in fact, being uh, doing scientifically based research? Mm. Yeah. Uh, it just seems to me like it's a bureaucrat or politician-y thing that's happening and right. look, we'll prove our worth, we'll ban a whole genus. Mm. Yeah, rather than sort of looking at it ecologically. Mm, yeah. Well, when I uh, took somebody to task about the salixes, they said, oh, we haven't got time to assess all 345 species and plus hybrids of salix. And I said, well, you don't have to. You only assess the ones we've got. Uh, and then if somebody else wants another one, you assess it at the time yeah. uh, and see whether it has weed potential. You don't have to assess the whole genus. The, the, there's a bit of an art to weed risk assessment, mm. um, and, you know, and it's not that hard. No. It's really not that hard, mm. is it? Yeah, well, I've seen the paperwork, and yeah. it, it, it's more or less just ticking boxes, really. Yeah, you know, yeah, if, yeah. if a plant can do certain things or can't, yeah. uh, then you can build up a... a, a profile on that plant quite quickly. And it's about their traits and attributes and, you know, so the little salix, that was, what was the species? Well, You would look at it, you would, uh, the weed risk assessment would, 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 would what's the ecological niche that it comes from? What's its form? Yeah. How would it 
disperse into the and it would inevitably come up with a very low of course number. It would. Yeah. I mean, if a great big sycamore leaf fell on top of it, it would <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in fact, it's hard to keep. I, I have to mollycoddle my little plant. It sits in a permanent saucer of water during the summer. It, it saucer gets taken away in the winter uh, so that it doesn't get too wet. Um, uh, I've got to have it out in sunlight because it's, uh, it seems to be a high light requiring species. So quite literally, if a leaf litter fell on it, it would swamp it. Yeah. Uh, so the poor little thing uh, is tenuously hanging on to cultivation in Australia. I think there's about four people who've got <laughs> poor little plants of Salix boidii that were imported 30 or 40 years ago. Right, yeah. um, and and it, it wouldn't take much of a natural disaster for it to disappear out of cultivation in Australia completely. Uh, is it and dis- in, in theory, it's banned. It's, it's got a weed risk. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So anybody out there who's listening who happens to be working for the people who assess such things, naughty you, because <laughs> I just think you're, you're not helping your own... I don't think they help their own case. No. Mm. Because people mm. who know enough to realise that there's anomalies going on here then just get annoyed because it's not being done properly. And it does. It annoys me no mm. end. And, yeah, I'm very happy not to grow seriously weedy things. Um, Apart from the pussy, will it? Well, I still do grow the weeping pussy willow only because I can. I mean, I'd be perfectly happy if they banned that one and let me grow Salix boidii. Uh, you know, if they were prepared to do that, that would be fine. I'd, I'd stop stocking the weeping pussy willow, but it won't stop everybody else stocking mm. it no. and selling it as Celtic Cascade or whatever else they're selling the thing as. Is that what's is that yeah, that's, well, cultivar it's, name? It's or? not actually a cultivar name. It's one of these sort of silly Common trendy names, names right. that they've attached to it so that you didn't have to say willow. <laughs> 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 because as soon as you say willow, you'll have somebody who'll go, oh, willows, can't have those. So if you call it a Celtic cascade, <laughs> um, then nobody notices. In fact, there's, there's another group of willows that are called ossias, and I've been thinking that the whole group that are, are garden-worthy should just be called ossias and not willows. <laughs> And then nobody would notice. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay, let's get on with some community announcements. Oh, yes, there must be lots happening. There is, there is, there is. Um, John, you've already uh, mentioned in passing that uh, uh, Cranburn Friends Group have got their plant sale on today. Indeed. Um, I presume that they weren't bought out yesterday, but no. uh, there should be plenty left for today if anyone's going down there. A lot of stock did roll out um, late last week. Good, excellent. It looked fantastic. Excellent. Yep. So 10 o'clock till uh, uh, 10 a.m. this morning till 4 o'clock this afternoon. It's located, of course, at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne there. Uh, and they've got a wide range of Australian plants in tubes and larger pots for sale, priced from $3.00. Um, you can uh, purchase your plants and have a look around the Australian garden. So uh, do support the Friends Group because all that money, of course, uh, goes back into the garden. Do they have Ethpos facilities? They do. Yeah. I think that's important to yeah. let people know. So you can arrive with your credit card. Yep. yep. You don't have to have a wallet. doesn't have to be a cash. cash. Mm, no. Which means you can spend more. Yeah, because it doesn't look like you're spending. No. <laughs> you, you can just go nuts. Hubby won't know. Hey, look at those, one of those. Oh, I've, I've got a couple of lady clients who, who use their credit card and they, they get me to destroy their copy <laughs> so they don't take it home. Uh, and, and they say, oh, look, you'll find out eventually because you'll see the, the bank statement. But, you know. <laughs> So, so would you like a receipt? No, 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 no thanks. No, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Perfectly happy with that one. Okay. All right. Also on today, uh, Fernie Creek Hort Society have got their flower festival happening. Uh, it's at 100 Hilton Road East in Sassafras. Um, it's open from uh, 10 o'clock 
through till 4 o'clock this afternoon. Entry is $5. Children under 14 are free. Parking is within the gardens uh, with disability spots available as well. The exhibits will include rhodos, azaleas, all sorts of mid-spring flowers, trees and shrubs, hostas and other potted plants. The plant stalls are well stocked and there'll be food, including the inevitable sausage sizzle, cut flowers and craft, and there'll be garden walks taking place uh, around that wonderful garden up there. So uh, that's 10am this morning through until 4 o'clock, 100 Hilton Road East in Sassafras. Now, uh, let me see. Also, uh, today, the Essendon Community Gardens have got their 40th birthday. Goodness me. Yes, which is amazing. It is. You don't sort of think of community gardens being that old here, do you? No, no, no. Well, they claim they're the second oldest community garden in the state. So uh, there you go. So 40, well done, Essendon. Um, So uh, it is their open day today. Um, now, this is running from 11.30 this morning through till 3.30 this afternoon. Entry is via gold coin donation. Parking is in Brisbane Street, Ascot Vale, and also along Hockey Lane. Uh, there'll be food, entertainment, plants for sale, and, uh, yes, go along and, and have a look, particularly if you live in the area and might think about um, actually becoming a member and joining up. Ah, now, uh, goodness me, there's so many things on. Our good friend Country Farm Perennials have got their um, annual Open Garden and Nursery Uh, Days. Fantastic. Now, they have already, uh, they were opened last weekend, but this is running right through until the 7th of November. So you can stroll the two and a half acres of manicured cottage gardens. You can see their spring blooms on display. They'll have a large range of plants available for sale. Uh, there'll be refreshments available on the weekends or you could bring your own picnic to enjoy. Uh, now it's open 10am through to 4pm, free entry for that one. And uh, if you happen to be uh, heading up today or thinking of it, they are also the Gardevalia Festival is on and there's going to be several other private gardens uh, nearby oh. um, all well, open today. So yeah. uh, if you went to... Uh, <clears throat> Country Farm Perennials, they would soon point you in the right direction of the other open gardens That's that are taking place. That's if you can get out place. of there. You might not get out. <laughs> you might not. No. Well, also, if you want to head just slightly uh, into a different direction, also on today is the Alexandra Open Gardens Weekend. Ah. So, And I know from past uh, years that they have some wonderful gardens open up there. It's a great area there. up there. There's really, really good keen yep. gardening sort of fraternity around that town. That's right. Yep. So, uh, so uh, several gardens open and also with uh, a full range of plants on display and for sale at those different gardens. So plenty there to be doing. Now, uh, moving on to... Uh, the next meeting coming up for the um, Australian uh, Plant Society Kilo Plains Group. Uh, their next meeting is November the 2nd, uh, starting at 7.50. Guest speaker is University of Melbourne Associate uh, Professor Nick Williams. He's giving a talk on the benefits of using Australian plants on green roofs. Uh, now, the address is Rayleigh Road Activity Centre, which is 54 Rayleigh Road in Maribyrnong, uh, cost is free, and if you'd like more information, you can contact the secretary Anne. Her telephone number is nine double three six three double two eight. That's nine double three six 
3228. That would be a really interesting lecture. Nick's, Nick's great. He's a really engaging, okay. clever speaker. Yep. Yeah, that'd be a great, that'd be a great talk. Uh, do you know if he's been specifically doing work with Green Roofs? Uh, at Burnley, yeah. So he's oh, been, he's, he's associated been, with he's the Burnley associated one. with that work, yeah. The yes. John Rayner and, yes. um, and, and Co. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. But, but yeah, Nick's, he's, I mean, he's quite the academic, but he's really, um, he's a really engaging speaker. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can be academic, but that doesn't make you a good speaker. No, no, no right. not at all. You <laughs> <laughs> can be actually be exclusive. Yeah, that's right. No, yeah, that'd be a terrific talk. Yeah, really good. fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, also coming up is a self-drive garden tour. Now, this is being, um, being run by uh, the Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens and... Uh, it's uh, taking place on Monday the 5th of November. It's entitled Through the Garden Gates, uh, running from 10am through to 4pm, and it's a self-drive tour of five garden locations in the Drysdale, Port Arlington areas and East Geelong. Now, uh, this is offering um, incredible variety of design and location, BYO picnic lunch, or you can choose from a variety of cafes in Drysdale or Port Arlington. Um, now, garden entry and tour details are by pre-purchase ticket only. There'll be no tickets available on the day. Uh, and you finish up with a delicious afternoon tea at Arundel in East Geelong, uh, along with a plant stall and lucky ticket prizes. Uh, now, the cost, if you're a member of the Friends Group, $30. Non-members, $40. Uh, that afternoon tea is included. Now, to book and to purchase tickets... Um, you can phone the Friends Group on 5222-6053 or go to the Friends website, which is friendsgbg.org.au. I'll just give out that phone number again, 5222-6053. Now, Open Gardens Victoria, they're really excelling themselves with offering workshops and yeah. uh, talks this yeah. year. Which is good. It's it good. is, because um, they're not just uh, involved with opening gardens, but they've decided to really step up into more an educational side, which I think is wonderful. So uh, the first one they have coming up is actually a talk by Christine Reid. Uh, now, Christine Reid is um, an excellent... Uh, she's an award... Uh, an excellent writer, garden writer... She's uh, written several books, uh, and this is um, uh, an illustrated talk by Christine on her new book, which is called Gardens on the Edge. Um, and it's, uh, as I said, this is to celebrate her new book. The talk is going to be held at the Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne's Mueller Hall. And, uh, of course, uh, and Gardens on the Edge is a collaboration between Christine and um, award-winning photographer Simon Griffiths. Gosh, Simon's done a lot of work. Yes. He gets around, mm-hmm. doesn't he? His photographs are amazing. They are Actually, really I should have offered great. myself I could have been a gardener on the edge. I'm not a gardener <laughs> on the edge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the talk is taking place next Thursday, the 1st of November, 6 <coughs> till 8 p.m., which will include light refreshments on arrival. Uh, it's at Mueller Hall National Herbarium there in Birdwood Avenue in Melbourne. Entry price is $20. If you're a member of the Friends of Open Gardens Victoria, $15. Students, $10. You book online on their website, opengardensvictoria.org.au. 
and uh, signed copies of Christine's book will be available to purchase on the night. Now, as well, they have their next open garden coming up. Uh, now, this is a bit further afield, but um, if anyone was thinking of taking, um, disappearing over Melbourne Cup holiday weekend, um, mm-hmm. getting right away from Flemington and, and getting into a peaceful garden instead, this sounds a really amazing garden. It's at Mitamita, which is northeast of Victoria. In fact, I've got relatives up there, so I know the area very well. It's a gorgeous part of Victoria. Mm. And it's called um, the Witch's Garden. It's uh, taking its name from Felicity, the owner's interest in medicinal herbs and plants. And, and it's I, Halloween coming up as and well. And it's Halloween <laughs> as well. So it, it works absolutely perfectly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So the Witch's Garden features a mix of exotic uh, trees, local eucalypts that connect the garden back to the forest beyond, sweeping lawns, beds of colourful perennials and roses. There's a lake uh, with a Monet-inspired bridge draped in wisteria, of course, as as it would have to be. Well, it has to be. be. That's mandatory. It has to be, exactly. Um, Behind the hedge, there's a formal parterre with a charming fountain and a pond at the heart of its design. There's an extensive veggie garden. There's Felicity's medicinal herbs and plants dotted along the wandering pathways. And uh, the witch's cottage itself, the house, is a real fairy tale style uh, picture. If you go to Open Gardens Victoria and click on it, um, you'll actually see a photo of it. And it looks amazing. I think children will think they've, they've definitely come to the witch Just out of Hansel and Gretel's. <laughs> control your children. Yes, they might think the house is made out bit. of gingerbread. <laughs> now, what they're doing is they're opening uh, the normal weekend of uh, 3rd and 4th of November, the Saturday and the Sunday, but they're also opening on the Monday because of the Melbourne Cup holiday. And on the Monday... They will be open during the day, but then they're having a special opening starting at 5 o'clock through till 8 p.m., where there's also going to be the Apostles String Band Tour performing in the garden. So that evening event will be um, a more expensive one. That will be um, $40 per adult with children's free for entry into uh, the twilight, we'll call it, um, opening. And if you're going to that one, visitors are invited to BYO chairs, picnic rug, um, food and drinks to enjoy um, for that one. But uh, for the general opening, as I said, Saturday and Sunday, 3rd and 4th, and Monday the 5th, on the Saturday and the Sunday, 10 till 5, on the Monday, 10 till 4.30, so that they can clear the garden out ready for the twilight opening, people to come in at 5 o'clock. Now... Entry just for the garden is normal, the normal cost of $8 per entry. Children under 18 free, students $5. And as I mentioned, the Twilight one, $40 for that one. Uh, there will be plant sales, coffee and cake, local pop-up stalls selling craft preserves and other local produce, and a local art show displayed in the on-site gallery. Now, uh, we do, as usual, have one free double pass. Uh, to give away, but this does not entitle you to the twilight opening. This only entitles you to the normal garden opening, but you can choose to go either the Saturday, the Sunday, or the normal garden opening on the Monday. Uh, so the first uh, listener who'd like to phone in on 94190155 can have that free double pass, and that will be posted out to you. 
Okay, and uh, I just should mention as well, also um, Open Gardens Victoria have uh, as well got a special workshop coming up with Jessamy Miller. Now, Jessamy is well known as being the chook lady. She's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's, uh, she is the go-to person if you want to know anything about keeping chooks in the city, and that's, in fact, the title of her uh, workshop. Uh, now, uh, the workshop is going to take place in Northcote at 3 Bower Street in Northcote, it's on Sunday, the 11th of November. There'll be two sessions, a morning and an afternoon session. Morning is 10 till 11.30. Afternoon session is 12.30 till 2. Um, cost is $35. And again, you go to the website opengardensvictoria.org.au and uh, book for that one. And I'm sure that that one is going to be... Um, very popular because uh, people are enjoying keeping chooks well, in suburban and as they gardens. they should. I mean, chooks are a wonderful creature. Yes, I have them. I know you have yeah, them. Crispy nugget, parmigiana, and cacciatore. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I've also got some ducks. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> Peking, pate, and foie <laughs> What happened to Jacques Orange? passed away, unfortunately. Oh. So we had to find Peking two new girlfriends this time round. Okay. Uh, so hence uh, Pate and Fagua. Right. Um, <laughs> two lovely young Muscovy ducks, which we've fallen immediately in love with. They're the cutest <laughs> things. So, Excellent. Yes, I love having birds around like that in the garden. It's yep. fantastic. Yep. And the ducks for the duck eggs. Oh, yes, yes. yes. So, uh, uh, actually, one of the girls, I don't know which one it is, has already started laying, and we've only had them for a well, month, I suppose, a month, maybe a little more. Okay. I mean, they were mature birds. Yes. Mm. We got yep. from a friend who has a huge flock of them, and she said, which ones do you want? And I said, I have the grey one and the black one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yes, yeah, so we're getting a few duck eggs as well. Do they lay as regularly no. as chooks? No, you tend to get, they'll tend to lay half a dozen or so eggs over a week, yep. and then they'll stop again. And then a month or two or three later, suddenly you'll get another lot of eggs that will suddenly happen. But, yeah, they're not sort of a daily egg layer mm. like most chooks are. Mm, mm. Um, but, yeah, I like duck eggs. They're, they're nice for cooking. I'm happy to have them in an omelette or uh, as a poached egg or whatever. Um, some people go, ooh, duck eggs. And I think, well, I can't see much different. They're slightly texturally different. They're a bit firmer when okay. they're cooked. Okay. But otherwise, I think mm. the flavour's not... I think they've got a great flavour. Yeah, I like them. Yeah. I think they're lovely. Do yeah. the ducks and uh, chooks live together? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they all, they all sleep together at night. The, girl, the, the girls and the chooks get up on the perches and the ducks just sit on the floor. Um, and they potter around in the yard together. Um, and, uh, yeah, they all seem to be happy enough. Mm, we're yeah. expanding our brood. We um, recently, well, not recently, a few weeks ago now, we got uh, parsley and sage. And we're getting another two in a couple of weeks, and they'll be, uh, of course, rosemary and thyme. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Naturally. Yeah, you've got to be careful yeah. when you do that because you'll run out of herbs. Actually. <laughs> no. uh, and tarragon sounds a bit silly. Yeah, yeah, well, the tricky <laughs> thing is telling them apart. They're two Barnabeldas, and, uh, the, and the only way we can tell them apart at this stage is sage has got one white toenail so oh, you, so you, you, can't, look you have to look closely yeah. but yes i sort of figure that they don't know which they are so it doesn't matter if you get them muddled up in your own head no that's true but they're, <laughs> they're laying amazingly already it's 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 wonderful so we we 
got a couple more because uh, we had two of the uh, Australia's oldest backyard chickens, Spotty and Dotty, and unfortunately Dotty um, went to the great big uh, chicken heaven, yeah. and uh, Spotty was by herself, and we had her. Um, inside with us for a week and there was like, no, this is quite unsustainable because she was mourning Dottie. I mean, it was her of sister course, yeah. and been together for so long. You know, she's 13 now. And uh, so, yeah, got got uh, Parsley and Sage and th- th- just completely brought her back to life. Like, yeah. yeah, they're just running around doing what chickens do. And these girls, my goodness, like we've never had girls from, like I got them, I think they were like, 12 weeks or something, mm. just the point of lay. And boy, oh boy, they actually fly. Like Spotty's, Spotty's a um, silver winder, so she's quite heavy. So she kind of pretends yeah. to fly, but doesn't really get very far, kind of falls off tables and things. But yeah, Parsley and Sage, they will fly for, you know, 10 metres. Oh, really? It's quite, quite incredible. So no, it's been delightful having them around. And, Fantastic. Yeah. Great. So Lots so of everybody eggs. should have chickens. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Except I've got a family of foxes oh. in the creek at the bottom of my garden. Oh, can I please have some of your foxes? Because we have got so many rabbits at the moment. Oh. I'm not joking. I mean, they're so adorable. They're, they're, ba- they're the kittens. kittens yeah. yeah, they're kittens. And they're just adorable. But there's, honestly, over the last couple of weeks, there's, I don't know, we've probably plague got a hundred. Plague proportions. Really? Absolutely yeah. plague proportions. Where's it, where's it to your property? Uh, Bend of Islands. Bend, oh, Bend of Islands. Yeah, oh, and yeah. really hard to do anything about them. I mean, mm. they're, they're I'm living. surprised you don't have foxes through there. We do. We do. Actually, we do have foxes, but yeah, I just... They're not doing they're, a good they're, enough they're job. Not do, and they're not <laughs> keeping up. There's just hundreds well, the of thing. rabbits at I the mean, moment. I, I have a, a family of foxes because every year mum seems to have a couple of pups. Yeah. Uh, but they, they get very sick of rabbit. I think they go in search <laughs> of chooks. Yeah, yes, totally. They, well, they uh, need a, a change nice of diet. Yeah, it's, it's quite nice, <laughs> I'm sure. I think chooks are easier to catch in, yeah, in well, some regard. Yeah, 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 yes. But, uh, yes, touch wood, um, my girls have been, you know, we've built a good run for them and all that sort of thing, and so I've had chooks and ducks now for seven or eight years I suppose and we've lost some over a period but never to the foxes so mm. right. yeah. so okay. there oh, haven't good. been other break in and, yeah. and, and they don't dig under and they can't climb over. You've well, got no, it's, got, it's roofed over the top, yep. so their yard is completely roofed over and the wire goes down into the ground and yep. out. Yes, yeah. so they can't So we did all the, the, all the right, right things. things. Yep. And, and their, their chook house is an, it's a nice solid building that we can close up at night. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so far we've been... Pretty fortunate because I know the foxes are about. Mm. Yeah, they would oh, we, yes. we see them regularly around our area, so they're there somewhere. They're really tame at our place. Are they? They come right up to the to the front door. Oh, you really? know? Lucky think of that. Yeah, they they bait our dog because our dog sleeps inside, yeah. <laughs> and we know if the fox is there looking through the window, I think they must come up to because he's got an outside water bowl. Yeah. I think they come up for a drink when it's dry and there's not Cheeky. much water around. Oh yes, they're amazing. Yeah, no, we we definitely have them, but yeah, not not doing a good enough job, unfortunately. Oh well, mm. okay. <laughs> Frustrating. A B, yes, it's a very exciting day for you. Oh yes, because nobody can see it, but yeah. Because A B has written this amazing <clears throat> tome of a book. The amount of information in this book is just incredible. It's it's going to be the go-to res- reference for. Anybody at all who's thinking um, of trying to make a habitat garden uh, as an Australian garden because it is incredible. 
And um, it's officially being published tomorrow, but yes. you're saying it's actually... It's in bookshops it's now. It's in bookshops yeah, now. Yeah, I think from Wednesday. I, my, my mum sent me a photo of herself holding a book from Dimex. I'm like, Mum, I'll give you a copy. You do not have to buy a copy. <laughs> 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 but it does help you say it. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yes, yes. No, she, she spike was, of sales. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <that's> right. yeah. <laughs> mum bought ten. <laughs> okay, well, the, the, the official name of the book is Habitat, A Practical Guide to Creating a Wildlife-Friendly... Australian Garden. Um, look, it's just incredible. But the first thing I really should um, explain to listeners, you've divided it into two parts. Um, so it's not just a how-to. We'll get to the how-to a bit later. But I love part one because you've made a very um, big commitment um, to actually spend some time and devote the whole of part one to talking about the big picture. Um, why did you decide that was so important for readers? Oh, I think, uh, so it, just to give a, a bit of a sort of basic overview, it's basically a um, ecology 101. And it, it's, um, I have come at this book from um, the point of view of food webs and chains, so how everything is connected in the garden. And if we try and just garden for birds or just garden for butterflies, we're not going to have nearly as much success as if we garden for all critters. And um, so bringing the ecology into it and, and, and I suppose the big picture stuff um, just gives people a bit of a an overview of, um, I don't know, the, um, how we look at nature and how we can learn from nature and the, and the food webs and chains that occur in nature and then how we can apply them in our own gardens. Uh, that is so true. In fact, it, if it hadn't been called habitat, I think it could have been called connectedness because that really is what it's all about. If you can understand, which you can if you read AB's book, understand your food chains and food webs, then you know exactly why you've got to think beyond just trying to attract a few birds or a few butterflies into your garden. There's so much more. And, and if, it, if, if you have everything connected, then the whole ecology in your garden is going to look after itself and you're going to attract all sorts of interesting critters um, yep. and, and, and things we don't think of looking after. We don't think of looking after... Worms. We don't think of looking after spiders in our garden. We don't think of looking after our little our little reptiles. Yeah, yeah. But they are so essential <coughs> to the whole ecology. That's right. And I mean, it really, when you come at it from that point of view, um, the gardening becomes so much easier. It really does. Everything starts falling into place. And you know, if you, I always say, and we all do as horticulturalists, you start with the soil. Mm. I mean, the things like the bacteria and and fungi, protozoa, there where it all starts. I mean, mm. that is where life starts. And it's if we, it is it? the total foundation. Yeah. If we're looking after our soil, um, suddenly we've we've got. Um, microbes in the soil, we've got the earthworms, we've got beetles and all sorts of critters doing their thing in the soil and slowly that um, has an impact on things further up the food chain because suddenly, you know, there's little critters in the soil, we've got leaf litter everywhere where, you know, beetles can be breeding and doing their thing and then that's going to be attracting our frogs and our lizards 
um, which is so important. And then slowly we go on and on up up the food chain, up to our apex predators, basically. Mm. And, I mean, in Australia we don't have, of course, the lions and whatnot as our apex predators, but we've got the powerful owls. Dingoes. Um, we've got dingoes. We, yeah. You know, in our, some of our gardens there's, or some areas there's quolls and, um, you know, so there, there's different levels, of course, in Tassie, the um, Tassie devil. Mm. Uh, so there's there's different levels, I suppose, of apex predators. But um, yeah, it it just it makes gardening easier, really, when you come at it from this point of view. And even though it's called you know wildlife friendly Australian garden, I do talk about um, I suppose the importance of using exotics as well as indigenous plants yep. and. Um, what I call near native and far native plants um, because we all love that variety and as we all know I mean, an eastern spinebill is not going to be fussed whether it gets its nectar from a, a, a salvia or, or a grevillea. Or a nifofia. Uh, exactly. Yes. You know, so if we've got everything in balance, there's potential for us to have the garden that we want as well, um, as well as supporting and um, encouraging critters. Mm. Now, um, one thing I love, you say if you want a good habitat garden, they're less tidy. <laughs> it is actually a good oh, so, thing to so be untidy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, no, no. We're just creating a bit of habitat out of yes, exactly. no, it's, it's, no, it's fine. That's right. Don't pick up those, those twigs and things that have come down. Just, yeah. just, yes. Well, absolutely. And I mean, really, when you think about it, if you think of the messier parts of your garden, I know for us, um, or just an example I like to use is we, um, every year we grow zucchinis and um, they get to a certain point at the end of the season, they get the sooty mould and they all start collapsing and it was time for me to go out and clean up my zucchini patch and I went out there at the ready and I just realised there was about, you know, half a dozen uh, wrens right. hopping around yep. inside, like underneath the zucchini leaves, having an absolute feast on whatever was in there. Yep. And I was like, great, I'll just grab a glass of wine and sit <laughs> down and watch <laughs> the show. Watch yeah, that's right. You know, so you, you start coming, coming at gardening from a different point of view. Yep. And, uh, I mean, tidy gardens are, and are not... Uh, critter friendly, no. basically, and that's about disturbance, isn't it? Oh, completely, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I mean, t- I'm talking about things like we don't need to prune things to within an inch of their life, you know. And if we're pruning, are we pruning off um, eggs of um, caterpillars, which are going to turn into butterflies? Yeah. But, you know, all all of those things and raking up the uh, leaf litter everywhere, you yeah. are breaking the life cycle of you know quite a few critters, especially beetles that certainly live in the soil. So yeah, I think there's, there's. I mean, a lot of us do like having tidy gardens, but you can have a kind of messy tidiness, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. You yeah. know, there's, there's areas where it sounds like my place. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where it's supposed to, it's supposed to not be basically tidied to within an inch of its life. And, and it could be about zoning as well, having some areas where they are, you know, maintained at a certain level and other areas that, that are left um, mm. a little bit to their own and devices. And that's exactly right. That's one of the things I do talk about in the book. Not everyone wants to have um, a, a, the entire garden given over to habitat, but we don't need to. We can no. have a small section of the garden. If you don't use your front garden as much, you know, you can turn that into a habitat garden instead. And that, that might be an area where if you've got pets, uh, they're excluded from. So that area suddenly becomes 
a wildlife haven, essentially. Mm. I think it's a beautiful, the book is a beautiful antidote to the minimalist garden trend. Which, mm, which I just find just so disturbing almost a little bit. Monocot monotony. Because yeah, yeah. it is about it, it, ecological processes. It, it's, it's, I mean, I've just glanced at the book, but it's congratulations. Thanks, it looks, it absolutely yeah. looks amazing. Thank you. Thank but you. it is about ecological processes, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I think the, the tricky thing is like so many people, I mean, gardening can be confusing even when you're a horticulturist and you're supposed to know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Let alone for people who have got no idea about plants or gardens. So yeah. I, I totally understand how people just want to, they've got a garden, crikey, what do I do with it? You know, let's put something in that I don't have to do anything to, don't have to even look at or worry about. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I get the minimalist thing sure. um, from, from that point of view. And then, of course, some people like the aesthetics of it. But you sure. can have those minimalist gardens, I reckon, and still have habitat. You just have need elements. to do it cleverly. Yeah, yeah. yeah have elements. Yeah. yeah. I, I, the plant list, um, the plant looks, list looks fantastic. These, these little coloured swabs, yes. almost like um, paint, paint swabs. Paint dwarfs, yes. Which are indicating the flower colour, yes. obviously. Just, yes, yes. That's a, that's a lovely touch. Yeah, it is a lovely touch. And the publishers have just done an incredible job with the, with the whole design and of the it. The layout's lovely. The layout, yeah. yeah. It's a very friendly book to, to leaf through. And they've um, created these incredible illustrations that enhance the text and, and just make it easy to read. And they've broken the text up so you're not reading these huge chunks of um information all at once because I mean I think the information can get a bit heavy I do you know I talk a lot about soil and um, chemicals and things like that and it can be hard to digest all that sort of scientific information so I've tried to come at it with a really um, humorous and and relaxed point of view so still getting the information across but trying not to be preachy about it and and trying to make it accessible. And again the lovely thing at a glance is that the book's kind of compartmentalised you can just go to a particular section on a particular topic and then it's it, yeah, it, yeah. Congratulations! It's bloody awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and I noticed that there was some um, some sort of guest uh, uh, writers in there, like Dave Duncan and Shari, and a few other um, people Absolutely. Have, have, have dropped in a, 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 some thoughts on something yeah. very specific. So we, um, I did. Uh a few case studies. Every, everyone loves a case study of um, gardens. And oh, so they're case studies rather they're, than authored by those people. That's correct. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, beautiful. Right. So they're yeah. case studies, and of course, I've interviewed them. And um, yeah, there's there's various um, Victorian gardeners and. Um, um, basically from around Australia. Fantastic. Just case studies. Just, um, I suppose, and it's always terrific to hear people who've created Habitat Gardens, just how they did it and the, the trials and successes that they've had. Um, but also in the book, I, I spoke to a lot of experts uh, around the country. Um, there was, you know, various um, doctors, um, well, Holly Parsons, who's a, a bird expert, and um, I spoke to her about um, various things to do with birds feeding and identifying birds etc because of course with habitat gardens you know most of the fun of it is then starting to identify our critters and um, I mean they get more and more complicated to identify the smaller they get I mean (laughs) yeah but uh, that is one of the one of the fun things but yeah so there's lots of experts that I interviewed and um, Dr Adrian um, Dyer from um, RMIT I think he was um, has been studying um, 
bird vision and and how how birds and insects see plants and see color really? um just the the color vision that they have and um so i, d- I did a, a a long write-up for that particular chapter on you know how birds and butterflies and um bees see flowers and i was like oh adrian do you reckon you could read through it and he read through it and he, and he sent back he's like oh well you've got it about 30 percent correct <laughs> i was like oh crikey just as well i got you to read good. it that's good fact check <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, the full-on fact checks the whole yeah. way through. And uh, Simon Leake is a um, soil expert who wrote, uh, who co-authored mm. the book with Angus um, about urban food, urban food growing, and he um, contributed to my soil section. So, you know, I, I would not pretend to be an expert in any of these areas, but I think what I'm good at doing is. Uh, digesting this um, very kind of tricky information and putting it in readable form. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was really lucky. People were fantastic. And also with the images, uh, a lot of people um, gave me images, which really makes the book. The images are fantastic. Yeah. Some of the photographs, a lot of them came from you, but a lot of other people have donated their images to absolutely, the book as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And our good friend, um, Chloe, uh, Chloe Foster, her uh, brother Luke and um, his partner Maddie, they travelled around Australia and um, I, I was very, very grateful because I've got a section in the book on Australia's biodiversity hotspots. There's 15 um, hotspots around Australia. And I was like, oh, I really need images where I'm going to have to go on a bit of road trip myself. Oh, how am I going to find the time? And then I found, I was like, oh, my goodness, Luke and Maddie have done this road trip. And they so generously just sent me all of their photos. And that their photos practically make up my entire biodiversity hotspot section. So, and then I follow a lot of uh, people on Instagram, a lot of uh, professional uh, wildlife photographers. And um, I contacted various ones from around Australia, and the people were so generous with with their images. So, and to me, that really is what makes the book. You know, mm. when you pick it up and you start flicking through, and you see these incredible images of frogs and lizards. And well, the book has soul. It does, yeah, it yeah. T- it totally does. And the, some of the photographers who contributed, they're conservationists themselves. So you know, they really liked the theme of the book, yes. and so were yeah, willing to let us have the, those images. How do birds see? Oh, John, it's so complicated. Is it, it's, it's too complicated. So, yeah. it, it is. It is really complicated. I mean, Adrian's buy been. The book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to buy the book. Adrian, that's right. Doctor Dyer's been studying it for something like 30 years, and sure. he's got a good grasp. But I, I know that you, they. I mean, things like white flowers, for example, we see a white flower, whereas or a yellow flower, and then a bee will see it completely differently. And of course, all the the patterns on on the flowers that we think are totally there for our benefit, of course, they're just about the bringing the pollinators. They're nectar in. guides. They're yeah. nectar guides. Yeah. Absolutely. Making sure they can find the source. Exactly, yeah. because bees have got really bad eyesight, right. and so they they navigate initially by smell until they get close. And uh, yeah, so it, it is it is it's tricky, and and um, they say that um, or not they Adrian was saying that um, a lot of Australian plants have um, have um, de- started developing um, red 
flowers because mm-hmm. that's of course highly attractive to birds. Birds see red really well, okay. whereas bees don't. Okay. Um, and that's the last colour that that bees see. Bees see blue really well. Um, but uh, yeah, so in, if you want to bring more birds into your garden, use red use red, red flowering, flowering plants because birds yeah they're, they're almost like they're beacons to birds. Right. Cool. Actually, so. red tubular flowers tend to be bird pollinated worldwide. So if you go to South America, a lot of the tubular sure. red flowered yeah, things, that, that yeah. makes they're sense, all yeah. bird pollinated. Yep, yep. Uh, and so if you see a plant with a tubular red flower, it's a good chance that it's a bird pollinated plant, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you can use that as a guide sometimes if you're just using an unfamiliar plant, as long as you know what its flower shape is like and what its colour is, yeah. yep. then you've got a fair chance that you're putting something in that a particular uh, pollinator will enjoy. Mm. Mm. Well, as, as well as the um, the plant list, which actually I think is fantastic because it, it lists not only the flower colour, as John was saying, but um, it also lists whether it's nectar producing, whether it's fruit producing, whether it's seed producing, which gives you a few clues as to what you're likely to attract into your garden if you plant that particular plant. But then further into the book, you've got a plant pantry, which specifically, no, this is great because um, you've got plants for beneficial insects, plants for nectar feeders, grasses and strappy plants for lizards, frogs and small terrestrial mammals and on it goes. So if you're scratching your head as to what do I need to plant if I want more lizards or what do I need to plant if I want um, more butterflies, you've got a list there to help you get started. Yeah, it, and, it, and in those particular lists I do focus more on the uh, native plants. The Australian native yeah. plants. Yeah, yeah, but we're, I mean I do supply other lists in there which have got exotic plants in there as well. But yeah, and I mean the good thing is with with plants is we don't need one plant for each critter. Like you think of an acacia, um, that's going to supply. I mean, the acacia flowers themselves don't have nectar, but they they Lots do. Of pollen. They, they have a lot of pollen, and they attract the insects. So they're going to be attracting the insectivorous birds. And then when those pods actually form, they're going to be attracting the seed-eating birds. And yep. then I mean, other little um, like the tree creepers and whatnot, they'll be coming along and getting the insects that are on the tree itself. Yep. Under the bark, etc. So you don't need a whole heap of plants to to do a lot of you know you can exactly. just have one plant that will do yes. a lot of different exactly. things. Exactly, that's the native grass thing. You know, produces a little fruit, a little fruit, a little a, a seed for seed yep. eating birds. It's nesting material. Nesting it's material, host, yeah. host plant for butterflies. Yeah, exactly. It's a really yeah. great invertebrate habitat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a single tussock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and bandicoots. I mean, bandicoots uh, they absolutely love those grasses, don't they? Yeah. I mean, one of the um, <coughs> gardens in the book, one of the case study, as you mentioned, um, David and Cherie, David Duncan and Cherie, and uh, they've got this incredible habitat garden down near Cranbourne, and they've given over their entire backyard to habitat, and it's really funny because you drive up to their place in Cranbourne, and you think, oh, habitat, 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 and you get there, and it's just a suburban, the front yard is just lawn with a few standard <laughs> oh, I think they might even roses. be roses <laughs> and, and yeah, I'm thinking have I come to the wrong place and then there's a little sign on the fence saying oh this is a, a bandicoot protected property and you're like oh really really well they and like standard they, they, they <laughs> apparently yes and then you, you get ushered through the house and they've got a floor to ceiling um, glass door out onto the backyard and the 
entire backyard is habitat mm-hmm. and it's just so clever and they have got they call it the whisper garden because they like to you know keep the voices low when they go down because it's all about letting the animals feel comfortable and, and they've got bandicoots and yeah. blue tongues and yeah. snakes and myriad of birds so and probably a few complaining neighbors <laughs> no no they've really they've really bonded with their neighbors yeah. over the bandicoot and mm. and it's oh, that's yeah good. it's like oh yeah, what, what's the bandicoot up to today yeah but if somebody does something that's a little out there yeah. that often can galvanise the neighbours around you. So yeah, you and you can't select your neighbours. They're like family. You can't yeah. select them either. So <laughs> you know, if you're lucky enough to have neighbours that sort of get like-minded, you, yeah, yes. and uh, uh, and and are sort of on board with what you're about and doing, it's really good. Uh, dare I say, because they won't be listening. I've got a neighbour behind me, and they they rake their whole property, and it's basically gum trees, sclerophyll forest. They rake the whole thing clean. Yeah. They burn yeah, all of the stuff that uh, they've raked yeah. up. They do this at least once or twice a year. Then the rest of the year they run the, the victor over the top of everything so none of the native flowers get up and flower. Uh, and we don't actually have a fence. We've sort of got a, a boundary line, but we mm-hmm. don't actually have a fence. And they come along, and any of my mulch that is actually <laughs> rolled down the side. side. No, they ca- take it away and burn it. Oh. They actually oh. break from the edge and take it away <laughs> and put it on their burn pile and burn it. Uh, it drives mm. me spare. Yeah, I bet. And and you know, but they're fire safe in oh. their property. Okay. Oh, okay. And, and that 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 is a real problem. And when you drive around. The burbs. I mean, of course, fire is a problem, but people have just become so over the top paranoid yeah. about raking and cleaning everything, and it's to the detriment of our yeah. birds oh, and yeah. everything. Well, I know yeah. when that that section out behind me wasn't being maintained properly years ago, it was full of sundews yeah, and right. early Nancys Probably and few orchids, orchids yeah. and. Um, all sorts of stuff. Now you never see anything. Mm. Uh, and in fact, you can see him running around with his Victor in the summer. And because it's clay soil, uh, it's very patchy. You've just got sort of clumps of grass. And there's more dust going up than grass <laughs> being cut. You know, it's, uh, there's one dandelion. Quick, I'd better run over it with a lawnmower. Uh, get rid uh, of that superfood. Yes. <laughs> and it just, I don't know, I just don't get it. Um, and they must think I'm an absolute mess, you know, because I've got mulch on everything and, you know, and plants growing next to each other and, uh, uh, and, and in fact, you can stand in my side and look across into his, and it's sort of like a before and after. <laughs> and it's it's actually quite useful because I say to people, that's sort of what I started with, except that I didn't just take the tops off everything like that. But that's the soil I started with. Yeah, that's right. the yeah. sort of uh, yeah. vegetation that I had. Um, and and now this is what I've created since. Yep. So, um, yeah, so uh, I think I'm going to have to put some sort of boarding around the edge of my property to hold, <laughs> hold my the mulch, mulch back yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it keeps disappearing. It keeps getting raked away. And I think, oh, God, not again. <laughs> so I don't know. I should quickly also mention, AB, that as well as practical things like the, the plant list, um, you've got a whole section devoted to practical projects and you cover everything else I can possibly <laughs> Think of. You've got compost tea, coddling moth traps, you've got soil... Uh, testing, um, you've got how to build um, insect hotels, how to how to build bird boxes and bat boxes, and with all the dimensions and and everything else, it's it's incredible. Yeah, it w- that was a real um, that was always going to be included in, in the book, 
um, the practical projects section. And, I mean, things like insect hotels, they're, they're so easy to mm. build. I mean, really, it's just with stuff that you've got lying around the place. Certainly mine was. And kids absolutely love projects like that, don't they? You mm. know, yeah. Oh, yeah. insect hotels. You box for the powerful owl. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, that's, and that, I mean, I do, I do mention that in the yeah, book. Yeah, you do. Even though we've got dimensions for various um, critters, birds and, and possums and whatnot that use them, uh, I mean, you, you shouldn't be surprised if someone else uses it. Yeah. Well, isn't that the point? That, that it doesn't matter who yeah, uses a bit, it. Well, it does yeah. a bit because I, I put up a, a box up in the trees thinking I'll help the native birds and the bloody miners. <laughs> miners move. Oh, yeah, 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 the miners You need a baffle. You need a baffle on it yeah. because if you create like a mini veranda over oh, the yeah. front of it, um, miners like to fly straight oh, into straight the hole, in, whereas yeah. parrots and whatnot, they're quite they're happy, happy to, to, work, to work the way in yeah. underneath a baffle. Yeah, so we, do, we talk about we that talk in the about book it. as well. Yeah. There Good. you go. Good. Good. Well, well, I, might have to, I might yeah. have to renovate. <laughs> 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 so it, it is, but it is that how-to. It's, it's, it's the philosophy that sits yep. behind it, but it is about how to. It's very, yes. very instructive. Yeah. And, uh, again, just the, the glance at the plant list, it's, uh, these plants are accessible. It's not, it's not things that are going to be a stretch to try and find. Oh. Completely, or, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to use plants that, um, th- a lot of the plants are ones that people, certainly people who know a bit about native plants will recognise, but also ones, at, as you say, that are absolutely accessible. Some might be a bit of a hunt, uh, but, I mean, essentially start Indigenous and, and, and go from and there. Most basically. areas, well, particularly in Victoria, have got Indigenous nurseries. Oh, we're so grow- lucky. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. growing the things from their region. Yeah. So it's actually quite simple. You just go along and you'd say where you are and yep. what sort of habitat you've got and most of those people know enough about what they're growing to say well you'll need some of these and some of that and yeah yeah that's so true and uh, we're lucky with our councils they've got listen I'm actually I've uh, just recently become ambassador for a program called the habitat stepping stones program nice. okay and people it's a non-for-profit organization and people can hop online and uh, look that up and, and you put in what state you're in and it immediately gives you a list of of uh, plants that you can use um, that are rel- relative, and they haven't gone overboard with their with their list, so they've kept them. I think there's about 40 or 50 plants, so that you're not completely bamboozled by hundreds and hundreds sure. of plants, which which can happen. So, yeah, that that's a really good program. Works in really nicely with the book as well. So uh, totally, hey, yeah, AB, yeah. you know your career is starting to reach a level of maturity when you become an ambassador. Oh yes, oh, thanks, thanks, John. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's, I'm saying that in a very, very, yes, very no, nice way. You know what I, I mean? know. Well, it just seemed to be an absolute partnership made in heaven, really. Yeah, perfect. Uh, so they were excited for, for me Nitty to come gritty. on board. And Nitty how gritty. much? Uh, oh, yeah, how yes. much is it, Pam? Is uh, recommended retail <laughs> price. You don't price your own books. $39.99 recommended retail price. Yep. Um, yep. Basically $40. But yeah, we'll, basically $40. It's published by Allen & Unwin, which yep. is a subsidiary of Murdoch Books. That's right, yep. Yep. Um, readily available, as you say, but definitely available from tomorrow. Apparently in all good bookshops. Yeah. Can I do this? Um, $39.95, but there is a website... Oh, uh, you can buy it cheap already. 25% oh, is that, is that Booktopia? Booktopia. Yeah, yeah, I saw, <laughs> I saw it, yeah. So Booktopia have got it so for So they actually bucks. have it, yeah. I noticed they had um, orders um, a while ago, but yeah, that's good that they've got it. So yeah, it's, it's out and about and, and uh, ready Fantastic. to go. Fantastic. I've just well, added it to, I've just, I've just bought it. Oh, thanks, John. Proceed there you to go. check out. <laughs> Good idea. Well, man of action. Well, for one very lucky listener, we do have one copy as a supporters segment. So if you'd like to 
get your hands on a copy of this very hot off the press book um, that warm. AB has written. It is warm. <laughs> it is. I've um, only got one copy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, as I said, it's entitled Habitat, a practical guide to creating a wildlife-friendly Australian garden, but it is so much more. You've, you've no idea. It's just an absolute tome of information that you will keep going back to again and again and and, and looking at all the wonderful photography that, that's been produced in the book. So one lucky listener, if you'd like to uh, grab it, it will cost you $40. If you want to post it out, $50. And that money, of course, will, will go to supporting the 3CR Gardening Show. But uh, if you would like to grab that copy, um, do give us a call. And the number is 94190155. If the phone is engaged... Do keep trying because um, we only have one person in this morning manning the phones, but uh, 94190155 if you'd like to grab hold of that copy of the book and uh, we might even be able to uh, get AB to um, scroll to scroll her name scroll. her autograph on the book for <laughs> That's you. That's the fun so, part. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, it's high time we did uh, get to a few other things, goodness me. If you uh, would like to ask a gardening question this morning, we don't have much time. We're running through until 9.15, so you can jump on the phones and give us a call. That same number, 94190155. Double five, but uh, first up we have uh, Virginia online. Good morning, Virginia. Hi, Pam. I am definitely going to buy that book this week, <laughs> and I think it might be one of my Christmas presents. There oh, you go, there, Virginia. Thank you. It sounds, I've been waiting for it, AB, and it sounds <laughs> great. Thank you. I just rang to say that next weekend the Upper Yarra Valley Garden Club have got six gardens open along the Warburton Highway. From Launching Place through to Warburton. Okay. So if people are looking for an alternative to racing next weekend, come <laughs> on either Saturday or Sunday to the Upper Yarra Valley Garden Club. Fantastic. Okay, fantastic. So is there a starting point or um, where can, can they find out the addresses of the open gardens? There are signs along, along the highway as you, as you come along. You know, they, they mark them. So just head to the Warburton Highway. Right. Um, most of them are in Warburton. That's where they start because it's based in Warburton. But in actual fact, you can start at Launch, which is going towards Warburton. Right. So that's two towns on from me in Seville. Yep. And I'll be on. I'll be working on one of them on Sunday. Okay. Brilliant. Excellent. So that'd, be, that'd be fun. I mean, there's a lot on because there's also gin, the Gindavik Gardens are open next weekend as well. Oh, look, there's so many gardens opening. It's crazy. It's a, people have to somehow make a decision as to which ones they're going to go to. Yes, and this valley has not suffered like so much of the rest of Australia, whereas green is green, and our gardens are all looking absolutely beautiful at the moment. Mm. So it's good. Excellent. Okay, but, thanks for that. Cheers. Bye. Uh, Sharon from Cheltenham rang in on the off-air line to just say um, she was on a recent holiday in Port Ferry and was very uh, concerned about the invasive weeds along the beach. She's mentioned a whole lot of different species that seem to be out of control. And uh, she also mentioned that uh, the weeds had so encroached on the area that there were no birds to be seen. Mm. And she wondered if uh, that was suppressing some of our our native um, habitat. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it's interesting. I have this conversation with quite a few people who say, oh, you know, the weeds only come in when the area is disturbed. Mm. 
and to a certain extent that is true, but uh, it really starts eroding those um, natural relationships, I suppose, that are happening. And, and when we don't get on top of the, the weeds, essentially, yeah, I mean, some critters might um, benefit from those weeds, whereas most most critters, um, especially the ones that are more vulnerable, I suppose, will certainly suffer. So, uh, yeah, it is a problem. And, and managing those weed populations, it's... Um it's not always straightforward. Mm, no. Not at all. You know, and it because often requires a lot of manpower yeah. and hours and yeah. things to yeah. actually get on top of it because a lot of those things have to be done manually yeah. if you're going to have any real long-term impact. And, and possibly incrementally yeah. Um, yeah. as well because if you just go through and just take all the gorse out of a particular area, which is or legitimate... Or blackberries or, or whatever, yeah. They are... It's a compromised habitat, but it it's is. still habitat for some things. Absolutely, so, yeah. So it know, needs to be a, a plan where you're um, taking out some while you're planting other other areas. Exactly. And yeah, yeah. It, it's yes, because little birds and things will hide amongst blackberries and gorse. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, so you do have to be aware that you could end up with a flat paddock with no wildlife. Yeah, um, just because you're trying to get rid of a weed. Yeah. Always reflect on Wilson Botanic Park. Cause Wilson Botanic Park basically rewilded mm. um, with uh, uh, colonising plants, most of them exotic weeds. Mm. Um, and there's a fair bit of um, bird diversity and wildlife, and, and that's probably about ecological niche as well mm. as structure. Um, and one of the challenges is, is that what they want to remove the weeds, but they, they're going to approach it incrementally mm. because... You know that if they just went through and uh, cleared everything, uh, we'd be dispersing a fair bit of habitat. Yeah, and, I mean, and it's easy for us to say, oh, but we can see birds, so they must be doing okay. But in actual fact, there there would be a lot of animals that uh, are are suffering or have disappeared. Sure. Animals that we wouldn't necessarily see. Yep. Um, that aren't, um, yeah, that, that can't cope with those kind of conditions. So, so they're sort the, of the, not iconic species that everybody's aware of either totally. a lot of times. So, so yeah. it's probably about those really resilient things that are much more forgiving or something like yeah. that. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, I think it's something like half of, half of our um, threatened species live on the urban fringe. Yeah, right. So, I mean, we have a really good opportunity to be able to do something about that simply, but, you know, if we do create a habitat garden yeah. straight away and, and I mean, just quickly to get back to the book, that's one of the things I found when I was interviewing people that really surprised me is that um, people were creating these habitat gardens um, to, to play their part in helping the environment, mm. which I just thought was beautiful. So mm. it wasn't even about themselves. It was about... You know, contributing. Yeah, contributing, mm. essentially. So we, we, as gardeners, we really have the power in our hands. I, and we're, that's a really powerful statement because as gardeners, we can... Actively do things yeah. to create habitat, to cool cities, to mitigate some climate, to increase biodiversity, to conserve species. Yeah. We could just, that's a wonderful palette of, of, I don't know, things that we can do. Absolutely. To make a positive contribution. It is. Yeah. There's so many people sad news stories. Yeah, if people get involved, it's a really feel-good yeah. um, thing because... You know, if you do it right, there's no downside to it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And and think beyond your own garden because if you know there's there's an, another garden space nearby, you're also helping create a corridor mm-hmm. for the wildlife a- as well. Absolutely. You know, yeah. you know, stopping off spots for yeah, the, yeah. the birds coming yeah. through. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and one of the things that we talk about in the book and and um, 
David from Cranbourne, and he was the one that sort of brought it to my attention, is um, a lot of us have got solid fences, paling or collarbone fences. And if we just create little holes at the bottom of them, which you won't even notice because you'll have shrubs or whatever in front of them, suddenly there's a thoroughfare for your blue-tongue lizards, um, echidnas. You know, if you live close to parkland or or bush reserves or whatever, you're going to have echidnas coming through. You're going to have blue-tongues, potentially bandicoots. If they can get through if your they fence. If they can get through the fence, exactly right. Actually, one of my friends just down below my nursery wanted to put a new fence in, and they actually put a wombat gate through it. Beautiful. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, Perfect. Smart new wire fence, yep. you know, uh, and then... This wombat gate yeah. in the middle of yeah. it. Um, Which makes total sense because, as we know, wombats yeah, do have a mind the of their yeah, own. They, yeah. 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 So you're helping yourself as well as the wombats <laughs> exactly. by putting the wombat gate through there, as long as they're smart enough to work out where the gate is. Oh, they oh, do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can make it heavy enough that only a wombat can push through Correct. and the rabbits yes. can't push yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cranbourne Gardens have devised all manner of okay. little wildlife goats, little bandicoot. Your bandicoot gates. Gates awesome. can go through, but rabbits can't and... Um, and I think the wombat gate might have been a, a Cranbourne Gardens, and anyway, there's a whole, the, all manner of really interesting wildlife gates, uh, all the way through. Yep. The, so we've got a porous fence. Yep. It stops cats and things from getting in, yep. foxes from getting in. So, yep. but in terms of the capacity for critters to move in and out, yep. Um, Very clever. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. Yep. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, we need to go to our next caller. We have Daryl out in Ringwood. Good morning, Daryl. Yes. Good morning. I have a dwarfing form of a persimmon tree and it's planted in the ground and the last couple of years it's fruited quite well and leafed up. At the moment it's leafing up but some of the laterals are not leafing up and I've scratched the surface of the lateral and noticed that it's very not green. So is it slowly dying or what's happening there? It may just be losing some of its lower twigs. I mean, a lot of those trees do. They, they, They will put all their energies into their higher twigs where they've got more sunlight and so forth and the lower twigs will die off mm. so you know it's probably at a point now where you'll know pretty certainly which ones are going to grow and which ones aren't uh and i would just whip off the the dead twigs yeah prune back I, to yeah just prune them back to to where where the main stems come up um and certainly persimmons are inclined to lose low twigs or twigs with inside the the tree so you just need to th- clean them out every so often so uh, unless it's you know, a high percentage of all of the branches on the tree that are going that way, in which case it may be a problem. But if it's only the lower ones, um, my gut feeling is that they're putting all their energies into the higher twigs where they're going to get more light. Okay. Um, when's the right time to prune them? Anytime? Or? Oh, you can take dead twigs off things anytime because mm. there's no sap flow. So, yep, uh, right. And once you know what's dead and what's not... That's probably the, well, in fact, the time to prune is when you've got the time to prune in a way. So when, <laughs> when you see that something needs doing, uh, do I will go out and do it. Oh, uh, even if the pundits will tell me that, you know, I should prune at a certain time of the year. Sometimes, <laughs> if you're trying to remember to do it at the right time of the year, you won't get it done at all. So if, if it's a job that needs doing, I do it when I see it. Um, with the proviso that if it's something frost tender, I, won't prune until after the frosts are over. Um, I mean, I got really serious frost damage this year on quite a lot of plants because we've got some seriously heavy frosts. And I actually had a garden opening, and it was just that little bit too early to prune things back mm. before the opening. So I just left them. I thought, well, people have to understand that this is how my garden is running. And so those plants that are standing there looking like corpses, uh, they'll be fine, but I'm not prepared to prune them until after I'm fairly confident the frosts are over because I'll just do more damage. Mm. and good so it's only in the last week or so I've really started 
cutting back a lot of that stuff, particularly seeing as I've now bought a new chipper shredder. Um, <laughs> my other one blew Garden its bearings. Yeah, well, uh, this thing is fantastic. I'm so pleased with my new chipper. Um, uh, my other one used to take me hours to get the stuff through, and, you know, it would jam, and it oh, drove me insane. But I kept persevering with it because I'd spent good money on it, and, you know, and I had it for years, uh, swearing at it the whole time. This new one seems fantastic. I'm really pleased with it. So, yeah, so now I'm, I've got about three or four major shrubs still to, to get stuck into, which I'll probably do this coming week. And then all my dead clobber will be cleaned up for the summer. And, uh, and, and I can see where things are shooting now too, so mm. I can cut back to that. Um, and, and also sometimes I cut back to shape the plant properly. Sometimes it's, you know, you need to take things down even further sometimes. And but of course you'll check for green lacewing eggs when you prune. Not them off. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I'm afraid if there's any silly lacewing that was silly enough to lay its eggs on the tips of a dead oh. branch, it's. I'm sorry, but it's become it's compost. <laughs> it's in the mulcher. Yeah, it's in the mulcher, but it's Much not wasted. The mulcher. Yeah, it's, it's not wasted. They all become part of the, the, the ecology, of the ecology in another way. Uh, okay, Dara. Oh, thank you very much. That's okay. a pleasure. Bye. Pleasure. Ah, we're going next to uh, Jill from the Herb Society. Good morning, Jill. Hi, Pam and everybody else. Um, yes, on Thursday night we're having a talk by me. Um, the speaker who was due to is in hospital, so yes, I'm filling in. And it's going to be herbs and flowers used in various festivals, you know, Chinese New Year and various others as well. So it should be quite interesting. And uh, we meet at 7.15 on Thursday, the 1st of November at Burnley Horticultural College. And you enter the main building through the steel ramp door. And it's 500 Yarra Boulevard, um, Richmond, 45 for Melway, 45A12. And members bring supper. Herb supper. Um, we usually have a raffle of some sort, you know, plants or um, herb books. And we also welcome visitors very readily. We hope visitors come. Now, from tomorrow, that information will be on the Herb Society website, which I'll put on tonight, herbsocietyvic.org.au. One word, Herb Society Vic. Okay, we'll hope to see some more people come along. Okay, great. Thanks, Jill. Thanks, Pam. Bye. Okay, uh, John, we haven't mentioned, we've got all these flowers, we haven't had a chance to get to any of them. You've brought in this beautiful little bouquet uh, you've picked. That was sweet of you, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a posy of, um, of native daisies, so... Um, could be a tussie mussy. It could be a tussie. It could be a tussie mussy. <laughs> so I mean, Australia's, uh, you know, Asteraceae is one of the big families in the Australian flora. And it's funny because it's often uh, overlooked. Uh, you know, we think about eucalypts and we think about acacias and you know all those other big groups of plants. Yeah. But our daisies are often overlooked. I think they're in the. They're certainly in the top six, yeah. five or six in terms of diversity. Well, it's one of the world's families. great. Families, isn't Absolutely. it? I mean, you know, Asteraceae mm. is frighteningly big. Yeah, frighteningly uh, big. Yes, all over the world. So I've just got a, a, a range of different uh, olearias that were um, picked out of the Australian Garden um, on, on Friday, uh, including a couple that are really quite significant. Probably not the most ornamental of the of the oleareas. There's one called Oleria astroloba, 
I like it though. It's, it's very got very pretty leaves. Very pretty leaves. In yeah. fact, it's a gorgeous thing. It's yeah. a gorgeous thing, mm. um, and it, it naturally occurs in one location uh, at the back of Bindi Station, which is uh, just out of Omeo. So single single population. Wow. Thing. So it's it's potentially quite threatened. Uh, indeed, mm. and and this particular there was a florist that there was a proposal to put a, a uh, I think it was a limestone quarry in the location, well, uh, the location of this. They did an environmental effects statement and found this threatened species to stop the quarry. Yeah, yeah which was, you know, it's really quite significant. Um, but, yeah, in terms of natural distribution, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a dot on, on, on the, on, on the atlas. Yeah, well, any plant that's like that has got real serious problems. So <laughs> it needs to be well protected. Yeah, indeed, but a gorgeous, a gorgeous, it has got, a gorgeous Yeah, I was thing. going to say, it's got the good sense to at least be very attractive. It's, it's, yes, a, it's, a, it's a very so beautiful plant. So it could plant. become quite a good garden plant. Um, but olieries occur, I mean, they, they occur in Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Um, as yeah, a, New Zealand a, has a, a group, huge and group of them. Very beautiful. Oh, some of the New Zealand ones are amazing. Uh, you know, some of them are trees. Mm. Um, but there's one here, which is Olea homolepis, that comes from Western Australia. So all over the state, into arid areas, there's there's areas all the way through the central Australia into into the, some of the arid country. And indeed, there's one that Stephen would know well. Oh it's yes, the, yes, the that's musk, one of our local ones. The, the musk daisy bush, yeah. which is actually a, a quite a large tree a, or medium-sized tree. It's really quite big. Yeah. Uh, it's It'd have to be our biggest delirium. I would think so, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And long, and probably the longest lived as well. Yeah, it can be a really old tree. Yeah. You, know, you see some around Mount Macedon that have got trunks on them mm. sort of a metre in diameter yeah. at the bottom and, you know, really serious trees. And they, they like the sort of cool rainforest. Cool temperate rainforest mm. environment, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So a super diverse um, group of plants um, and some of them with, you know, some conservation significance. We saw one which um, it didn't have any flowers on, so I didn't bring it in, but Oleria panosa from Point Addis. We were down there last week okay. doing some collecting in the Ironbark Basin. Okay. Um, and, you know, this thing uh, occurs there in the Brisbane Ranges and another little population up at Wedderburn, and that's about it. Good. So some of these olieries are very restricted in there and have, you know, conservation significance. And, mm. um, you know, olieria astrolobe is actually listed as vulnerable across its range. Yes, Which right. is a single yeah. site. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't much of a range, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> but they're a great group of fantastic garden plants. Yeah. Um, well, you can get something for almost anywhere, can't you? Yeah. You've got from quite tiny plants up to serious sort of exactly. small trees. Sort of know. brachycomb size mm, all yeah. the way through to the musk daisy bush. Which yeah. is it's always surprising because you tend to think of daisies as being little and ground yeah, covers and little, little but shrubs. But the world is actually, yeah. almost every country's got its giant daisy the ar- species. The arborant, whatever, yeah. it's tree daisies. Yeah, yes, there's a whole range of tree daisies yeah. from all different parts of the world. You know, there's the giant dendro, uh, dendro, cere- dendro something or another, dendro, oh God, I can't remember the name now, but it's a big giant daisy that comes from the mountains in Africa. Yeah. And, and everything else is little tiny herb mm. things and this whacking great daisy thing yeah, sticks yeah. up in amongst it. And yeah, it's an amazing family of plants. It is an amazing family of plants. I'm just trying to think of, the, I mean, there are, there's quite a few of those big tree daisy mm. things. Um, yeah, there's one from Juan Fernandez Island right. uh, that grows like a... Well, just a single stalk comes up, has these great big leaves that look about five times bigger, but much the same shape as a tree tomato, mm. and then it produces these yellow daisies on the top of it. And there's a handful of plants in the wild. That's it. Yeah, right. Just a handful. You know, so it's exceedingly rare. Mm. I mean, hardly anybody's ever heard of one Fernandez Island anyway. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a tiny little dot in the ocean. I'm trying to think of the Mexican. There's a Mexican tree daisy thing. Uh, it's just well, there, there's mind. one I've got in the garden at home. Um, 
And you're right, there is a Mexican tree day here. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not, not coming to mind either. No. Yeah, no, anyhow, <laughs> there are some big days. There are some big days. <laughs> yeah. John, yeah. when when you're in here last, we were talking about the whole problem you had with the the red sand and the plants within it, yep. and what's happening. So we've completely renovated the red sand garden. So it's now a plantless landscape. We are going to plant it. Yep. Um, but all the, the circles, the soil has got a, a little bit sour and they got a little bit weedy and ra- rabbits were heavily grazing the salt bush which, which mm-hmm. were in there. So the performance, it, and it's the hero image as you walk in. It's, it's that sort of well, it is. Yeah. heroic. Yeah, it's really important totally. sort of piece of yes. landscape. And it? it was really compromised. So we've over the last five or six weeks, we've dug all those circles out to about 30 centimetres. We've moved um, about 500 cubic metres of sand oh. out and then back in. Um, that was the, a big job. That was a big job. All the circles had this kind of plastic edging, which was buck- buckling. Oh. So we replaced it with metal edging and okay. regroomed the surface. It looks really schmick. Um, so it's just, it's just waiting for some plants. It's yeah. just waiting for some plants. But we're going to plant in, um, we're going to plant in autumn. Yeah. And you'll... You'll appreciate this, Stephen, because this was... I think I might have mentioned this last time, but we've ended up... The, the selection of the plant, it needed to have the right form and function and colour and a whole range of different things. Um, so we did this evaluation of all these grey foliage plants, native plants. We went out to Karanga Nursery to because um, we wanted to cite some of these things we thought might be suited. And in the garden bed, there was this grey foliage plant and the staff have caught their eye and then they've gone, well, that's really quite amazing. They've brought it back. It's a Westringia smoky, which is a variegated plant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I do appreciate this. I think this is fantastic. John hates variegation. I, 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 have, I have some issues with variegation. Yeah, yeah, yes, I have heard that. Of you. Uh, so it, we, uh, we, got, we put in the order last week for 1,800 Westringius <laughs> smokies. Which you I, think, I, think that, I think that's there's something sort of poetic about that. <laughs> Manager horticulture, Cranbourne Garden, Gardens endorses variegated plant as centrepiece of yeah, the, the, the iconic right. landscape within the garden. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's really good. I love it. Yeah, I thought you might appreciate that, Stephen. <laughs> oh, there we go. It, it, so it is about being absolutely open to the right plant in the and right place. look, it is about the right plant in the right place. Yeah. I mean, people often lock themselves away from plants because they have a preconceived idea that they don't like something. Mm. And it's often not the plant's fault. It's their perception <laughs> or how they've seen it used before. Yep. You know, and so some really good plants can get ruined by the way that they're utilised yep. in gardens. Uh, and so it really is a matter of how you use them. Having said that, I have no particular yen to use a golden diosma. No. For whatever reason. I'm, <laughs> sure, you, I'm sure you can use it well, but I just can't bear the plant. And I've got a neighbour not far away who's planted his whole driveway with, he, he's got Zelkovas growing up over his driveway and he's planted a row down each side of golden diosmas all the way down and his driveway is about 200 metres long and it is in full flower at the moment and it looks dreadful. Yeah. Uh, the gold foliage in those little pink flowers. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it really a, offends my sensibilities. Yeah, I have seen it used in a garden in South Africa en masse mm-hmm. and it looks incredible. Yeah. So I think, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's right plant one, as well. One, one plant, mm. yeah, doesn't, doesn't a garden I don't mind the, the, the species, the green one. Yeah. Oh, I want to say I don't mind. I don't... As a plant. As a plant. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's pretty reliable and resilient and... Yeah. 
you know, it's pretty little foliage, but that golden thing's hideous. Yeah, and yeah. they've bought out a new golden one not long ago that's even dumpier, uh, and it's even <laughs> more a disgusting shade of yellow, <laughs> and the flowers are a sort of a greyer pink. <laughs> uh, why anybody thought that was a good idea, I've no idea. No. There you go. Virginia says the tree daisy's called a Montanoa. 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 That's it. There Thank you, you go. Virginia. Thank you, Virginia. Uh, Virginia. I, I knew the name, but I just couldn't bring it forward, and that's going to happen more and more. I'm getting old. By <laughs> Pinifidato or something yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, well, I've got one called uh, Arborescens Leucantha in the garden at home, which is the only one that sort of survives my frost. Okay. I've tried by Panata Fida many Bipanata times, Fida. and it just gets knocked out by the cold. And I got one called Hibiscifolia oh, yeah. at one stage, which was beautiful, lovely foliage, but it lasted for the f- till the first frost, and then it was gone. gone. Uh, but that's part of the fun of gardening, too. I don't mind buying something that is borderline and having a crack. If I can find just the right spot for it, yep. sometimes I get away with it. Mm. Other times I get knocked out. But you learn something yep. from you the mis- learn. mistakes. Yep. And exactly. You know, even if it's only not to plant that again. Yep. Um, so you learn. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Montanoas, wonderful daisies. Yeah, good things. Excellent. Okay, we're going to Robert out in Mitcham. Good morning, Robert. Yes, good morning, all. Look, uh, in our garden we've got a fatinia. Uh, it's been there for probably 60 years. Mm-hmm. It's quite significant in the um, gardenscape, and it's looking quite unwell. Ooh, I was nearly going to cheer then, but obviously, <laughs> you, obviously, you want your skinnier. Um, uh, look, the trunk, uh, so some of the trunks have still got green on them, and some are uh, decidedly ill. Yeah, look, if it's got to that point, I don't believe that it's going to ever be a good plant again. Um, I hate to say this, but I would just cut your losses and cut your tree. I was afraid you'd say that. Yeah. Uh, apart from anything else, even if it survives for many more years, it's going to look like a hospital case. Yeah. Uh, and so it's never going to look like a nice plant. Um, and, um, you know, you can feed it, you can prune it, you can do all the things in the world that you want to do to it. But if it's been there 40 or 50 years or more, I mean, there's no reason why Fatinia can't last longer than that. Mm. But it's obviously struggling for what, whatever reason. And... I think if sometimes it's cathartic just to get something out of the garden that is no longer looking attractive, prepare your ground and get something new in place. And that's really what I'd be doing. And it's not like the world will miss one more fatinia mm. because there's an awful lot of them around, so it's hardly rare. So it's not something necessarily that you should be cherishing anyway. Um, I, ju- I just think it's time to go. So, I mean, it may not be the sort of information you wanted, but really, at the end of the day, one thing you can't buy in gardening is time. And if you let it sit there sulking for the next few years, which is likely to be the scenario no matter what you do, um, you're wasting the time that you could have been putting into getting a new tree going. Hmm. Well, it's getting too short for me. Well, yeah, look, it's heading in that direction for us all. And I just don't think that there's the time to fiddle. Uh, as you get older, I think you've just got to take the decisions and move forward go. and not, not sort of sit there pandering to some half-dead thing. Go bang. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it's, a, it's, a, it's turned into like a, a, a rounded tree form, Yeah, being, that, being that old. It's um, quite, quite large. It's probably got, oh, I don't know, about 10, 12 various trunks on it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, it's, 
and is probably uh, 15, 20 foot high. Yeah, yeah. it's a tree, yeah. Yeah, yeah look, I, I th- look, I know of Fatinia is not necessarily the robusta variety, but Fatinia serrata, which is one of the old species Fatinia. Which I don't mind. Yeah, I think it can make a lovely tree. And there's, uh, we saw one recently in the Camperdown Botanic Gardens, which was vast, mm. amazing tree, and it's got to have been there 80 or 100 years. Yeah. So in theory, Fatinia's can go on for an awfully long time. Um, but, yeah, when one starts to ail, and there is something, and I don't know what it is, but I've noticed around my area where people have been planting Fatinia screens and hedges, uh, there is some sort of blighty thing going on where bits are dying out. Yeah, okay. And I don't know what it is. Okay. Um, it just seems to be around the area. I haven't put any effort into spreading it. <laughs> um, it's just doing it on its own. Um, and I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm hoping it's not something like fire blight or something yeah. that's out there, because uh, Fatinia could be... Very yeah, prone to fire blight, yeah, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, but there's certainly something around the Macedon Ranges where Fatinias are getting really dowdy and, and, and disgusting looking. Uh, and therein does lie the issue when you plant monocultures of anything, because if something goes wrong, mm. it goes wrong with all of them. Mm. So, but yes, so I'm sorry, but I think the time has come, so you need to get the men in and have the tree down, maybe get it stump munched out if you can, yeah. uh, get your ground prepared, you can do that over summer, and then you've got the wonderful Mm. chore of deciding on its replacement. Mm. Just don't get paralysed by choice. <laughs> and that's what happens. People come into my nursery and if I give them more than three or four yep. options, they turn around and go, oh, we'll give it some thought and they disappear and I think, oh, bugger, I just lost another sale. <laughs> yes. um, so, yeah, so you can't become too paralysed. You've got to find a thing that you're satisfied and happy with and run for it because otherwise you will I've, I've had clients that have spent three and four years trying to make up their mind about what to plant and you think you've just lost three or four years how can you do that anyhow you don't think there's any any point in uh, just cutting out the um, the dead no because it's going to look scruffy yeah right. it's yeah, never no. going to look like a nice tree again I think you know the time has come <laughs> I mean right, you, thank you very much you, you, you could coppice it and it Possibly could reshoot. I mean, if they're, they're reshooters. But then it's not going to be a. Then it's not going to be. Then it'll be a shrub. Tree for That's years right. Anyway. That's right. Um, and I just think there's so many wonderful things out there that you could take up garden space with. Mm. Uh, that if you've got a scruffy fatinia, why would you hang on to it? Persist with it, yeah. Yeah, just because it's there. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Heard the message. Okay. Be you. brave. <laughs> Bye, Robert. And uh, we have uh, our good friend Pam out in Kyneton. Good morning, Pam. Hello, hello. Good morning, everybody. How are you, Pam? Well, thank you. Good. Now, for Stephen, I have uh, two plum trees. Yes. Uh, blood plum trees. They're down on the halfway down my hill. Yeah. And this year they've got plums on them. Mm. And I knew I was going to have to be careful of all these sneaky frosts we've had. Oh, yes. Because we've had a lot of them. Mm. And I didn't get the cover over it. Now, it's got like, um, on it, it's got like curly leaves. And it looks like curly leaf, you know, yeah. how they get. Um, and I thought that's what it was. And then I had some people in the garden yesterday and we looked at some leaves. And we did find a tiny little, oh, I don't know. He said it was a green beetle, but I really wasn't sure. Mm. 
But I think it's frostburn. I looked at it later it, 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 in the I, day. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I think there's a very yes. good chance it's frostburn. Um, yes. We've got some seriously late frosts around the Macedon Ranges, yes. and they were really heavy. Yeah. Um, mm. And, uh, I mean, if you found one little green bug, I don't think that's going to have caused the issue no, unless no, there's a whole mass of green bugs. Yeah. Um, so it's probably some benign little bug that just happened mm. to be there, um, and somebody's blaming it for the damage. Yes. Um, uh, it's been a really torrid season this year. I mean, we had no frosts in the autumn, uh, and the winter was dry and mild, and then yes. suddenly the spr- you know the late winter spring hits us, and that's when we got all the frost this year. So yes. the plants just couldn't cope. So I wouldn't panic about it. Plum trees are very resilient. They come back again quite well. Whether it'll have any impact on the fruit this year, I don't know. Uh, but later growth will come on, um, and that will be fine because it won't have been frostbitten. So I just sit and wait, I think. It's That's got plums. I've got a good crop of plums this year, and I had none last year because of the frost. Yeah. So it, it, the frost, obviously, they they come in all different shapes and sizes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Frost damage will have different impacts depending on its level and when it happens. Yes. Uh, and, and we've had them. We've had them. This we had them during this week, mm. but they were finished early. You know how some frost will hang on till ten o'clock yeah. in the morning. These are finishing earlier, I suppose, because the days are warmer. Yeah. But yeah. they still, the, the nights are really cold. You oh, yeah, yeah, it has yeah. been. The last few days we've had some quite cold nights. Yeah. Um, I struggled so, home a, a couple of nights ago from a friend's place and I hadn't taken my jacket. Mm. <laughs> and it was yeah. very cold on the way home. So, so you wouldn't do anything. I nope. sort of mulched it. I've oh, look, you could, you could. I mean, now is a good time of the year to feed a lot of stuff. So you could, you could always give them a bit of a, um, a an organic that. feed, yeah. uh, which won't hurt. Just um, a little bit. But I don't think it, it won't correct the problem that's there. Mm-hmm. It'll just make the tree a little healthier for later. So, so if I gave it some seaweed, would it be, would would a spray of seaweed over the leaves benefit it? Won't do it any harm. No. It'll make you feel better. Pardon? (laughs) It'll make you feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, the seaweed tonic is a really good product. Uh, It it works very well as strengthening plant cells and making the plants sort of uh, more resilient and things. It doesn't feed plants specifically. No, I realise that. Yeah, I sort of use the analogy that if you're ill, you don't want a three-course meal, you need a pill to make you better, and that seaweed emulsion tends to work like the pill. It's a tonic for the plant, and it also helps the soil and stuff as well. Yeah. So you certainly can't do any harm. So, yeah, go, go ahead and give it some seaweed. Um, but I, in general, I think if you don't do anything, it'll still be fine in, in the end. Yeah, I have covered it. I mean, it's like shutting the door after the horse is bolted. It is. <laughs> I, in fact, I'd probably give up doing that by this time of the year. I think even if we do get another latish frost, there's not much oh, well. you can do about it now. Done now. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Thank you. I, I just wanted a bit of confirmation. Really, I think that the frost burn was. Yeah. yeah look, I, I'd, I'd feel reasonably confident, knowing where you come from, that that's probably what the problem was. Yeah. All right. Next year I'll cover it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's always next year. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Steve. Okay. okay. Thanks for your help. Bye. 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 
Stephen, let's... Oh, yeah, we better chat. have a quick talk about a couple yeah, of plants because we have put them up on the Facebook page. We have. Uh, Four start... minutes for three plants. Oh, God, here we go. All right, <laughs> the first one is a native shrub that comes from the uh, rainforests of northern New South Wales, so it isn't a drought-hardy sort of out-in-the-open type plant. And it's one of the uh, wineberries, Aristotelias, and this one is Aristotelia astral... Lassica. Australasica. It's, it's <laughs> such a weird way of putting Australia into yeah. a plant name. I'm yeah. you know, sort of used to it being done in a different way. But it's a nice shrub, has little tiny white Tiffany lampshade type flowers on it, uh, pleasant heavily veined foliage, and it gets a quite bright red berry on it. And I think it's a, 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 a charming shrub, but it's not you know, it's something you'd plant out in a hot part of the garden. It does like a shady-ish spot. It does like a little bit of moisture. Um, and it does prove the fact that not all Australian native plants are just going to grow anywhere you whack them. Mm. Uh, it does need an aspect that where it will work quite well. Uh, the wine berries, a lot of them have actually been used for making wine. Whether you can make wine with this one, I have no idea. Right. Uh, small glass? From that small one. glass of wine, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that any of the wine berries make a particularly good Shiraz, but anyhow... Um, I think they're an interesting group of plants. They all have pretty flowers. Uh, there's Australian ones. There's New Zealand ones. Uh, there's South American ones. Yeah. So it's one of those Gondwanery groups of plants. It is. Uh, there's some in New Caledonia as well. Yeah, cool. Uh, so it is a really interesting genus of plants. And this one would just make a pretty light, airy, attractive shrub. So that's the Aristotelia. And the other two plants I brought along are both Viburnums, which will make things a little quicker. Uh, we have Viburnum setigerum which in China, is the leaves are used to make a tea. You can make a viburnum tea, apparently. Nice. I haven't tried it, but okay. I might this year and see if it tastes any good. Sure. Uh, I think it might be one of those things they make a tea out of because it's good for your kidneys or your liver or whatever, I don't and know. And it might taste awful. And it might taste awful. So, <laughs> But it gets good autumn colour, gets little white flowers in clusters, gets lovely, again, red berries. It gets very good autumn foliage. Its branches come out in lovely flattened tears. So oh, I love real, that. Yeah, tree any form. plant that does that yes. really sort of gets my heart racing. Oh. Uh, some and of the viburnums yeah, are just yeah. incredible in this that one's way. about a three meter shrub uh, and reasonably tough and hardy. And at the other end of the scale, I bought in Viburnum macrocephalum, which means big head. <laughs> and it has. It's got the biggest flower head of any viburnum you can get. It's like a huge pom pom. Uh, the flowers almost get to maturity while they're still green. So you have big green pom-poms. Almost like a hydrangea. Yeah, it looks more like a hydrangea. I mean, you would call this a moderately large-flowered hydrangea. Mm, um, and it's a sterile form, so unfortunately it, it uh, masquerades under the, under the species name, but it's actually a cultivated form. The wild species of this has a lace cap flower with the bracted flowers mm, around the outside beautiful. and the little beady ones inside. And unfortunately the wild species has been given varietal status. Okay. So it's, it's a bit of a mess. Somebody should pull it together and do something with it. But Viburnum macrocephalum grows up into a large shrub, around about three metres. It tends to be a bit gawky and twiggy. It's not a particularly pretty shaped plant, but it flowers from about midwinter through to about the end of spring, early summer, with these vast big white heads on it. Uh, if you want something that'll knock everybody's socks off, um, plant Viburnum macrocephalum. Not easy to get, though, because it's comparatively difficult to propagate. So you don't see it around the nursery trade very often, uh, but it is quite a remarkable viburnum, and most people think it's a hydrangea. Mm, brilliant, brilliant. There we go. So I got well some things. You did and, get and they're all up on the website, so okay. uh, all up on the Facebook page. So have a look. Okay, we have run out of time. Just a quick reminder: uh, AB's book. It's called Habitat: A Practical Guide to Creating a Wildlife-Friendly Australian Garden. It is out now. Recommended retail price: thirty-nine ninety-nine. 
published by Allen and Unwin in all good bookshops. We'll be back next week. A big thank you to Robin, who's handed all the calls for us. And uh, next week, 7.30. Till then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.